When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Today's episode discusses murder, sexual assault, and crimes against children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The Oakland County child killer was a killer or killers who abducted, assaulted, and murdered four children between February of 1976 and March of 1977. The victims, Mark Stebbins, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik and Timothy King are still waiting for justice. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, please go back and listen to that first. We'll be waiting for you. I want to clarify a couple of issues from the first episode. The bond. Christopher Bush was being held on $75,000 bond in Genesee County. The bond was reduced to $1,000 and he went home. The dollar amount is less important than the idea that someone with criminal sexual misconduct charges in four counties was released. Who thought it was a good idea for him to be released from jail? Two, I was critical of evidence collection along Interstate 75 when Jill Robinson's body was found. I need to credit Dave Metzger of the Michigan State Police. He matched fibers on Jill Robinson's clothing to fibers on Timothy King's clothing, providing a link between the cases. Also, the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force was the first case of a serial murder investigation applying for and receiving federal funding. They got money from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. This organization is no longer in existence. But in 1977, they applied for and received $600,000 to keep the investigation open and active through 1978. Despite thousands of man-hours by law enforcement, no one was ever charged or arrested in these murders. Now, 40 years later, we're looking at the crimes, the suspects, and what became of those who tried to bring a killer or killers to justice. There are a few things better than a home-cooked meal. If you're like me, with lofty aspirations and limited cooking ability, creating a satisfying meal can be a challenge. Since I discovered Blue Apron, it's easy to create flavorful, restaurant-quality dinners. You'll never get tired of the menu because Blue Apron recipes aren't repeated within a year. Blue Apron includes a helpful step-by-step recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients which reduces food waste. Over the weekend, the Motor City was shivering with temps in the teens. I prepared Italian meatloaf with cauliflower and fregolasarda pasta. Warm, flavorful, and delicious. All for less than $10 per person per meal. Join the Blue Apron community of home chefs. 
Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. When we last talked about Christopher Bush, it was January 1977. Gregory Green, a friend and associate of Chris Bush, was arrested in Flint. Green told police that he knew who'd murdered Mark Stebbins, and he named his friend Christopher Bush. Whatever additional information Green gave law enforcement, it was enough for Flint police to pick up Bush and bring him in. Looking at our timeline, it was January 21st, 1977, that Chris Mihalik's body was discovered by a mailman on his route through Franklin. This means that Bush and Green were free men at the time of her January 2nd abduction. What do we know about Christopher Bush? He was the youngest of four boys, and at the end of 1977, he lived in his parents' spacious home in a prestigious Oakland County neighborhood known as Bloomfield Village. In the summer of 76, he'd been living on his own in a rented place near Alma, Michigan. Bush's father provided financial backing for Chris to open a restaurant, The Scotsman, in Alma. Within months, an arrest for criminal sexual misconduct with a minor had Chris Bush closing the restaurant and returning to his parents' home. Bush drove a small car, a blue Chevy Vega. If you do any additional reading on this case, you will see that a blue AMC Gremlin with a white hockey stick stripe is often mentioned as a suspect's vehicle. The Vega and the Gremlin are similar cars. If you're not familiar with AMC... And if you're 30 years of age or younger, it's possible you aren't. American Motors Corporation, or AMC, has its origins in the 1950s with the merger of Hudson Motor Car Company and the Nash Calvinator Corporation, which at the time was the largest corporate merger in U.S. history. AMC would be purchased by Chrysler Corporation in 1987 and rebranded Eagle. It would eventually be phased out completely. But in the 1970s, among their automotive offerings were two small, distinctive-looking cars, the Gremlin, a two-door subcompact hatchback, and the Pacer, a rounded, aerodynamic compact car with a cab-forward design. Why is the Gremlin significant? Well, on the night that Timmy King disappeared, he was seen in the parking lot of the Hunter Maple Pharmacy, talking to someone near a blue Gremlin with a white stripe. The King family, particularly Tim King's brother, who went back to the drugstore that night looking for him, stated that the blue gremlin was still there, which means it can't be the car that abducted his brother. The gremlin gets a lot of airtime, but what you rarely hear about is the Pontiac Le Mans with primer paint on the driver's side and a broken rear taillight that was seen the morning Jill Robinson was placed neatly on the side of Interstate 75, her arms folded across her chest. You don't hear about the 71 or 72 Pontiac Le Mans that left its bumper imprint on, in a snowbank on Bruce Lane, the dead-end street in Franklin where the snow-covered body of Chris Mihalik was found. Many years after the murders, as forensic hair and fiber analysis improved, law enforcement discovered that hairs found on each of the children came from a white animal. In March of 1976 and in December of 1976, through the end of 1978, 
Chris Bush shared a house with his parents and a white Welsh terrier. These crimes left families living in fear and police absolutely baffled in the 70s. And the investigators are still hard at work. Now, though, the defenders take you inside the case, revealing information that could lead to an arrest. While the 5'8", 250-pound Chris Bush is one suspect, there are many other names that appear around the investigation. Let's talk about these men and how they're tied to Chris Bush, to Oakland County, or how their record of criminal sexual misconduct involving minors links them to this case. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other names, other stories, but I selected those most commonly identified as suspects or participants in these crimes. In 1977, Gregory Woodard Green was in his 20s and friends with Chris Bush. Green was raised in Flint and was a 1968 graduate of St. Agnes High School. Sometime around 1970, Green headed west to California. He drifted from place to place, job to job, but he couldn't keep his hands off of young boys. In 1975, he would be arrested and charged with the sexual assault and attempted murder of a child. I prefer to avoid the grim specifics of crimes, but in this instance, it's significant. Green had sexually assaulted and asphyxiated a prepubescent boy. Fearing that the child was dead, Green dumped him at a local hospital where he was attended to and survived. Prior to his arrest in California, he'd assaulted dozens of young victims, but they only charged him with the more serious crime of attempted murder. He was sentenced to an inpatient mental health program instead of prison. Green was hospitalized for about a year, and when the doctors cleared him for release, he asked to return to Michigan, to Flint. His father, who was in his fifties, was not well, and Greg was needed to help him out at home. In early 1976, Green was allowed to return to Flint. He was still on probation, but it's hard to know if it was monitored, especially in light of what happened next. He arrives in Michigan the first week of February 1975, just days before Mark Stebbins is kidnapped and murdered. That spring, Green signs on for a volunteer position coaching youth baseball, where he's busy molesting some of the boys on his team. Later, when he's questioned about the assaults, he talks about the close relationship he had with the children he'd harmed. This is not someone who should be on the street. In August of 1976, he rapes a 12-year-old boy. He won't be arrested until January 1977, when Flint police receive an anonymous tip and take him into custody for the August assault. I should mention that Green bears a striking resemblance to the dark-haired suspect on the wanted posters that are visible all over town in early 1977. However, Green was in custody from late January 1977 until he died in prison in 1995. While he could have been involved in the first three murders, he could not have participated in the abduction and murder of Timothy King. Our next subject is Arch Edward Sloan. He was born in Pennsylvania, and his family moved to Detroit in the mid 1950s, where he attended Cooley High School. He dropped out in the tenth grade. Sloan was older than both Bush and Green, and his criminal record goes back to 1959, when he is charged with gross indecency and sent to prison for 18 months. He'll be paroled to a halfway house in 1961. I won't say that Sloan behaved for the next decade, 
but he was mostly out of trouble. In 1970, he's back in Pennsylvania living with his grandparents and working as a volunteer firefighter. While in Pennsylvania, he's arrested and sentenced to five to ten years for corrupting a minor. Because the justice system can't seem to hold on to him, Sloan serves the minimum and is released in 1975. He returns to Michigan, rejoining his family in Southfield, the same city where Mark Stubbins' body will be found in early 1976. Sloan is a predator, and he's arrested again in 1978. He serves six months, and he's out. March of 1980, he's arrested again, this time for criminal sexual misconduct. He's given a year in prison. If you're keeping track, he's been in prison four times and keeps serving short sentences for doing nasty, harmful things to children. In 1983, Sloan invites the young son of a co-worker to spend the night with him. Let that sink in for a minute. Arch Sloan has a co-worker's son staying the night at his house. He promises the boy a fishing trip the next day, but that night he gives the boy wine and soda, and once the child is intoxicated, Sloan rapes him. The courts finally do the right thing and slap him with two counts of first-degree criminal sexual misconduct and sent him to prison for life. Before the trial, Sloan's mother asks the judge for leniency because jail won't help his problems. Before Sloan is sent up, the prosecutor makes him an offer. Tell what he knows about the Oakland County child killer case. And like Green before him, Sloan keeps his mouth shut and does his time. It'll be 20 years before hairs found in Sloan's 1966 Pontiac are matched to hairs found on three of the victims. The hairs do not belong to Arch Sloan, but they are both in his car and on the victims. Arch Edward Sloan is serving his sentence at the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility on the west side of the state. If you're wondering what Sloan was up to in 1977, when the last three murders occurred, Sloan is working as a mechanic and tow truck driver in Farmington Hills. While they are notoriously stingy when it comes to releasing information about their investigation, the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office stated that hairs found both in Sloan's car and on the victims do not match any of the known suspects in this case. Theodore Lamborghini, or Ted Orr, as he was also known. Ted lived in Michigan until 1978 or 1979, when he transferred from his Ford Motor Company plant to another plant in Ohio. He'd been a person of interest in the 1970s, but wisely and quietly left town. While living in Ohio, he was very active in his church. He moved frequently, one apartment after another, always alone, always quiet, a good neighbor. No one in Ohio had anything bad to say about him. I should mention that Lamborghini kept himself and his home exceptionally clean. When he was arrested in Parma Heights, the childless and never-married Lamborghini was charged with multiple counts of criminal sexual misconduct against minors in the 1970s and 80s. It was his friend and cohort in perversion, Richard Lawson, that gave him up to authorities. In 1989, Richard Lawson worked as a cab driver. 
After a work dispute, he murdered his boss and fled Michigan for California. He would not be charged until 15 years later, when a Livonia detective took another look at the cold case and tracked him down. As law enforcement assembled their case against Lawson, they reviewed records from a previous arrest in Pennsylvania. During questioning in Pennsylvania, he admitted that he knew who committed, quote, the snow murders. This was another term used to describe the work of the Oakland County child killer. Livonia police detective Corey Williams asked Lawson who it was, and Lawson reluctantly gave him a name, Ted Lamborghini. It was August of 2005 when Lamborghini was first taken into custody, and 2007 when he sat in a Wayne County courtroom and pled guilty to all eight counts against him. The judge gave him three life sentences and gleefully reminded Ted what waited for him, a child molester behind bars. Wayne County prosecutor Kim Worthy, who would love to close out the Oakland County child killer case, offered Lamborghini a new identity and his choice of prison if he would talk to investigators about the case. Lamborghini's attorney declined on his behalf, saying he doesn't have any information. Another suspect, another man willing to keep quiet and do his time. Regarding Richard Lawson, I've not seen anything specifically stating that Lawson's DNA was tested against hairs found on the victims, but I'm assuming that since he's been in prison on murder charges since 1989, his DNA is on file. So what became of Ted? Lamborghini is in his mid-70s and remains incarcerated at the Saginaw Correctional Facility near Saginaw, Michigan. If you listen to the Janet Rohrer episode, Jan was just 13 years old when she disappeared on her way to school, only to have her remains found a year later. No one was ever arrested or charged. You should listen again, not just for Jan and her two older brothers, but because you will recognize this suspect from her story. In the year prior to Jan's death, two more teens were murdered, Norbert Peck, 18, and Oscar Garcia, 14, both in 1972. The boys were strangled with a rope and left in a roadside ditch. The main suspect in their deaths was a man named Todd Orzeka. Orzeka was well known to law enforcement and served time for attempted abduction and sexual assault. When he was released from jail, he was involved in a bizarre auto accident in northern Michigan. He'd stopped to pick up a hitchhiker on the side of the freeway. When the hitcher entered the car, Orzeka's vehicle was struck from behind, causing the hitchhiker serious injury. The young man would lose his leg in the accident. Law enforcement felt that the accident spared the hitchhiker's life because they believed that Orzeka would likely have killed him. In 1977, Warzeka was questioned in the Oakland County child killer case. There was no evidence linking him to the crime. If we're honest, there wasn't much in the way of evidence to hold a suspect on, unless the Michigan State Police had something up their sleeve during these pre-DNA days. In 2005, an investigator decided it was time to compare DNA from the materials found on Peck and Garcia to Ted Warzeka. The investigator heads to Texas to get a sample of Warzeka's DNA. He made the trip south, meeting with a Texas judge before serving the warrant, but he was too late. Tipped off by a relative that law enforcement was looking for him on two old murders, Warzeka hung himself in his storage unit. James Vincent Gunnels is a low-level criminal. 
in and out of jail most of his adult life for an assortment of crimes, including breaking and entering, but nothing involving children. A hair found on Christine Mihalik is matched by a mitochondrial DNA to Gunnels. When law enforcement tracks him down, he's fresh from jail and living in Kalamazoo on the west side of the state. During the interview, Gunnels denies any involvement in the case. He says he too was a victim of Christopher Bush, and it's possible that his hair was recovered because he'd been in Bush's vehicle many times. Gunnels' hair was found on the shirt of Christine Mihalik, a girl that was such a pleasure to be around that she was captive for 19 days before her snow-covered body was found on Bruce Lane in Franklin Village. Gunnell says that he wants to do the right thing and offers to meet with family of the victims, and the brother and father of Timothy King sit down with him. But they leave empty-handed. If Gunnell knows anything, he's following the example set by Arch Sloan and Ted Lamborghini. He's not saying a word. The explanation for his hair being on her body is a reasonable one, and there is not sufficient evidence to hold or charge Gunnell's. Both Chris Mihalik's sister and the family of Timothy King are public in their requests that law enforcement pressure Gunnels to come clean with what he knows about the case. Their request goes unanswered. Gunnels remains a free man. Gunnels has a younger brother, and I wonder if the brother has ever been brought in for questioning on this case. In August of 2016, Gunnels was arrested in Kalamazoo on drug charges. Law enforcement went back through the files, and in 1999, they brought out another name, David Norberg. Norberg, a Vietnam veteran, worked the line for the Big Three, a good job to have in 1978, and a job that most people wouldn't abandon. Norberg also drove a small blue car, a car similar to the oft-mentioned Blue Gremlin with the stripe. His name likely came up during the task force victimization search where they asked local law enforcement agencies to search their files for crimes that could be related to the child murders. Norberg was known to be violent, having assaulted both his wife and his sister on separate occasions. At the time of the murders, Norberg was questioned, but his wife provided an alibi for him and law enforcement crossed his name off the list. A Detroit News article states that Norberg had a history of violence and during assaults on his wife, Sharon, and also on his sister, Norberg held them down, pinned their nose closed, and clamped his hand over their mouth until they passed out. This is the cause of death for three of the four victims of the Oakland County child killer. Another reason to look at Norberg? He was a suspect in the August 1976 death of 13-year-old Jane Louise Allen of Royal Oak. Allen was last seen hitchhiking from a friend's house in Auburn Heights back to her home. Days later, Allen's body was found in Ohio, floating in the Miami River near Dayton. She was tied up using torn strips of a t-shirt, which is the way Norberg would restrain his wife Sharon during assaults. While her remains were in poor condition from being in the water, it's thought that her cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. Jane Allen's case is open and unsolved. Unfortunately, I have been unable to locate a photograph of Jane Allen. An Associated Press article from January of 1977, Sheila Srock, Cynthia Kadju, and Jane Allen are listed as victims of the Oakland County child killer, 
alongside Mark Stebbins, Chris Mihalik, and Jill Robinson. If you're an investigator in 1977, you look at this list, and Mark Stebbins is the one that doesn't fit. One male victim in a sea of young girls aged 10 to 16. Of course, as the investigations move forward and microscopic evidence is examined, all of that will change. This killer and this series of gruesome child murders brought the community to a very dark place. Parents were frightened. Law enforcement was worried. They were losing sleep and working hard on clues, tips, and evidence. Having lived through this, I think it's important for people who didn't experience this time to understand just how frightened everyone truly was. We're not done with Norberg yet. September 16th, 1979. 12-year-old Kimberly King vanishes from Warren. She'd been sleeping over at a friend's house across the street from her residence when she snuck out around 11 p.m. King lived two blocks from the Norberg residence. Her remains have never been recovered. Her case is open and unsolved. Prior to her death in 1995, Kimberly's grandmother purchased a cemetery plot for her, hoping that one day Kimberly could come home. Kimberly King's name has been mentioned as a possible victim of the Oakland County child killer. But until her remains are uncovered, she's just another missing child. In 1980, Norberg quit his job with the automakers, left Michigan, and moved to Recluse, Wyoming. Wanting to know more about this community, I reached out to a listener, Jeremy. He lives in Wyoming, and I hoped he could help me. Jeremy's response? Recluse is in the middle of nowhere. The town, if you can call it that, might have a gas station, but not much else. I asked him what it was like in 1980, and he said it was basically a lot of nothing. It wasn't even on a main thoroughfare. It seems like an odd place for a man to move to, especially a man with a good job and a home in Michigan. Norberg would die in an auto accident in 1981. His widow would claim that in his possession was a cross with the name Christine engraved on it, and a green worm pin similar to what Jill Robinson was known to have. Norberg's widow had given these items away and could not recall who may have them. In 1999, Norberg's body was exhumed and DNA tests run against a hair found on Timothy King. In a move coordinated by former prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson, a detective from Berkeley, where Chris Mihalik was last seen, along with other law enforcement representatives, are flown to Wyoming so they can oversee the work. Norberg's DNA did not match the hair. I was unable to determine if his DNA was tested against any other samples or profiles that may be available, or if his DNA was tested against any specimens that may exist in the death of 13-year-old Jane Allen. In early 2013, notorious Chicago serial killer John Wayne Gacy was considered as a suspect in the killings. While Gacy preferred killing boys and keeping them in his house afterward, the victim profile was quite similar. Gacy was also known to have traveled to Michigan during this time. 1976 to 1978 is when Gacy was at his most active, which falls in line with our time frame. 
John Wayne Gacy abducted and murdered dozens of boys in the 70s. We now know that Gacy was in Michigan around the time the Oakland County child killer abductions took place. Gacy's DNA was compared to the samples on file, and he was excluded as a suspect. In the 21st century, we often turn to professional profilers to help us gain insight into the mind of a murderer. At the time of these killings, the best minds in the business took a look at this case, but they weren't alone. In 1977, a local psychiatrist, Dr. Bruce L. Danto, became a vocal source of information about the case. The 50-year-old Danto, who, according to a People magazine article, resided in Birmingham, was known to provide psychological workups of suspects based on case information. Danto wrote letters to the newspapers. He spoke openly with TV reporters about his theories and encouraged the killer to contact him, either call him or write to him or approach him somehow. Danto's wish was fulfilled when in April of 1977, he received a letter from someone who identified himself as Alan. Alan claimed that he lived with the killer and had cruised for child victims with him. Danto and the letter writer set up a meeting at a bar on Woodward in Detroit. Danto showed up for the meeting, which was observed by plainclothes officers, but Alan didn't show. One of the plainclothes officers was approached by a patron, but he didn't talk to him. It's unknown if this was Alan trying to reach out or just a patron being friendly. When Christine Mihalik's body was found on Bruce Lane and Franklin, Danto theorized that it was a message directly to him because his name, Bruce L. Danto, corresponded with the drop site. Listeners, I'm going to be honest. There is an entire rabbit hole that I'm avoiding. Pedophile rings sharing victims and trading children. Bobby Moore and the Cass Corridor in the 1970s. Do a search on Fox Island or look up Brother Paul's children's mission. These monsters walked freely among us. In fact, in 1975 or 1976, police confiscated eight rolls of film from a 25-year-old Christopher Bush during an investigation into the happenings on Fox Island. Harold Lee and Elsie Bush had four children, all boys. Their youngest, Christopher, was the first of his siblings to die. One would die of leukemia while living in the United Kingdom. Another died of heart failure about 15 years ago. The remaining Bush brother, Charles, is alive and well and living in Connecticut. H. Lee Bush lived into his 90s, dying in 2002, and his wife died a year later. I've read that H. Lee Bush spent the last years of his life destroying the family records, including Bibles and birth certificates. In 2008, the last surviving member of the Bush family, Charles, was approached by the FBI while at his condo in New York. A cheek swab was done, obtaining a sample of his DNA. Law enforcement was unable to run the DNA sample against a hair found in the mouth of Timothy King. It appears that the hair along with the ligatures from Christopher Bush's bedroom, have been lost. 
If we go all the way back to January of 1977, Christopher Bush was cleared as a suspect in this case because he passed a polygraph test. He passed a polygraph. Let those words sink in. But we also have to talk about the polygraph that he didn't pass. And that polygraph was given months before Christopher Bush admitted to participating in a murder. For this part of our story, we head to Las Vegas. It's the summer of 2006, and a group of polygraph examiners gather for a convention. This is where two men from Michigan cross paths. Patrick Coffey, an examiner who lives in the San Francisco area, grew up in Birmingham and knew the King family. Coffey meets Larry Wasser, and the two men strike up a conversation. Coffey admits that he decided on this career because of what happened to his friend and neighbor, Timothy King, in March of 1977. According to Coffey, Wasser then says that in the late 1970s, he gave a polygraph to a man who has spontaneously admitted to participating in the murders. Coffey is stunned. He presses Wasser for more information, but Wasser can't come up with the man's name. He does recall several details, including that the attorney who contracted with him for the polygraph was female, and that she'd since died. The client had died as well. This fits only one suspect, Christopher Brian Bush, and one attorney, Jane Burgess. Burgess was in her 50s when she died in 1997. Wasser was administering the polygraph at Burgess's request because of charges unrelated to the Oakland County child killer case. Remember, Christopher Bush was facing criminal sexual misconduct charges in four Michigan counties in 1977. The polygraph may have been a preemptive move to help him avoid jail. When pressed, Wasser would later strongly deny that the conversation with Coffee took place. You see, it's a criminal offense for an examiner to divulge details obtained during an examination. Wasser was subpoenaed to testify, and he fought it, finally agreeing to meet with the family of a victim, where he reluctantly released tidbits of information but declined to name anyone directly. Wasser said he didn't want to be sued by the client's family. It's been 40 years since this polygraph was administered. Both the client and the attorney are dead, and Wasser fears a lawsuit. He would never name Christopher Bush directly, but admitted that, yes, the name sounded right. Lawrence Wasser still has his business and still lives in the Detroit area. His neighborhood is just a few miles north of where Timothy King's body was dumped on a cold March night in 1977. Tell his story about his family's quest for justice for a little boy. One thing I remember is this birthday present I got from him some time ago. Happy birthday, dear Dad. Best wishes, Tim. I've told my family that when they put me in the crematorium, I want this to go in with me because I want to take Tim with me. In recent years, expert examiners reviewed the polygraph results from the tests done on Bush and Green and Flint during January 1977. All three examiners determined that both men failed the tests, meaning Bush did not pass the polygraph administered while he was in police custody just weeks before King was abducted. It would be during a polygraph at his attorney's office in late 1977 that Christopher Bush allegedly admitted to murdering Timothy King. 
During the summer and fall of 1977, Bush appeared in court in all four counties where he had charges pending. Bush pled guilty each time, and every single time, Burgess went to bat for him, talking about what a wonderful man he is, that he's not a risk, he has roots in the community, and he comes from a good family. All four judges gave this nice young man probation. No jail time for the repeat sex offender. Probation. November 22, 1978. The Bush housekeeper arrives at the house on Morningview Terrace, but finds the house bolted up. Her key won't let her in. She can hear the dog barking in the house and sees newspapers piled on the porch. H. Lee Bush and his wife are in England on business for General Motors. The housekeeper contacts a neighbor who contacts Charles Bush, who calls the Bloomfield Township Police Department, who meet Charles at the house. Upon entering, Chris Bush is found in his room, still in bed, under the blankets. He's been there for a few days, dead from a single gunshot wound to the head. Once again, Dr. Sillery performs the autopsy. There was no gunshot residue on Bush's hands and no spatter dotting the wall behind his bed. In Barry King's blog, Chapter 24, there is a document dated November 30, 1978, that states, quote, insufficient levels to indicate the presence of gunshot residue. Which isn't that unusual considering that he used a small caliber rifle. Scattered around his bedroom were shotgun shells, which link back, in theory, to Jill Robinson. On the floor in his closet was a tattered pile of ropes, tied and looped like they were once used to bind someone. Perhaps a slight but athletic 11-year-old Timothy King? On the wall was a pencil sketch, the face of a boy, the hood of his jacket pulled up, his face contorted in agony. The sketch bore a striking resemblance to Mark Stebbins. If you're curious, there are many photos of the room where Chris Bush died. You can easily find them online. The ropes from his room? I'd like to know if they were tested for DNA, particularly touch DNA, either from the victims or another suspect. The family home where Christopher lived with his parents had another resident, a white Welsh terrier, a dog whose fur could match the, quote, white animal hairs discovered on each victim. Law enforcement did not perform a forensic search of the house on Morningview Terrace until 2008. They pulled up carpeting. They cleared out air vents. They even opened up a wall and examined the old dumbwaiter. If they did find anything, the task force isn't talking. They did not release a statement about the results of their search. Despite the appearance of the scene, it's determined that Chris Bush is dead by his own hand. There would not be another murder officially linked to the Oakland County child killer. Did Christopher Bush, with a new job lined up, the holidays approaching, and receiving only probation for all of his dirty deeds, decide that he couldn't live with himself and take his own life? Or was his death staged to only appear to be a suicide? Could he have been killed by someone else? Bush cannot be exhumed because his body was cremated. I'm not sure how well we can trust the autopsy results because Dr. Sillery is the one who performed the autopsy. In the last 10 years, the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office was quoted in multiple places that Christopher Brian Bush is excluded as a suspect. David Gorsica, 
who was the Oakland County prosecutor prior to Jessica Cooper taking office, told the King family that Christopher Bush was his lead suspect. Within a month of Bush's death, the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force is shut down. They cited a lack of funding and a lack of new cases. Perhaps an intrepid state trooper will find new evidence in the back of a dusty evidence storage locker at the Michigan State Police Outpost in Northville, or maybe in Oak Park. When you're trying to solve the death of a child, particularly a violent, senseless death, it eats at you. I can't imagine what the investigators dealt with regarding this case, but I can tell you what became of some of them. Berkeley cop Christopher Flynn died by suicide under strange circumstances in November of 1978. He pulled his car into the parking lot of a church in Berkeley, then used both hands to shoot himself in the chest with two handguns. He died within days of the suicide of Christopher Bush. Flynn investigated the disappearance of Christine Mihalik. In 1991, Michigan State Police Sergeant Joseph Kreese who led the investigation for the MSP and was quoted in a 1978 write-up about the case in People magazine, died in a bizarre murder-suicide. Kreese shot his estranged girlfriend several times through her car window, then turned the gun on himself. Kreese had been living one mile from the Gill Road location where Timothy King's body was left on a March night 14 years earlier. Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tubin, who led the search for Timothy King in March of 1977 and helmed the task force as head of the Southfield, Michigan Public Safety Department, died after hip replacement surgery in 1993. He had received a blood transfusion during the surgery, and the blood was tainted with extremely rare bacteria, causing Tubin's temperature to spike at 109 degrees. Yes, you heard that right. 109 degrees. In 1997, his family won a malpractice suit against the hospital. Not only was the blood he received discolored, they didn't treat him with antibiotics until several hours after he began to decline. One-time New York City cop, former Detroit police chief, and former Oakland County sheriff, Johann Spreen died in 2012 at 93 years of age. The German-born Spreen became Detroit police chief in 1968 after riots decimated our city. I had no idea who Spreen was until investigating this case, and honestly, I look forward to learning more about him. Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson ran for county executive in 1992 and has served in that capacity since. In November 2016, The 77-year-old narrowly won the election and retained his seat. He calls the Oakland County child killer case one of his greatest regrets and wishes that it were solved. That might be what Patterson says during interviews, but you should know families of the victims. They're waiting for him or the current Oakland County prosecutor, Jessica Cooper, to include them fully in the investigation. Michigan State Trooper Lieutenant Robert H. Robertson was the task force coordinator alongside Sergeant Joe Kreese. Thirty years later, his son, David Robertson, was assigned to the task force. Detective Sergeant Gary Gray, who has since retired from the force, kept the aging files in the Michigan State Police Oak Park Outpost, a location just half a mile from where this case began, when Mark Stebbins' body was found at 10 Mile and Greenfield Road in Southfield. 
I was disheartened to read that photos of the blue gremlin with the white stripe are on the wall there. I was hoping they'd instead have photos of a Pontiac Le Mans, or a mid-60s Pontiac with primer on the rear panel, anything but the blue gremlin. Arch Sloan drove a 1966 Pontiac Bonneville. I wonder how it compares to what witnesses saw along Interstate 75 that December morning, when Jill Robinson's small body was left behind after being shot. Jane Burgess, the attorney who represented Christopher Bush on his many child molestation and child pornography charges, died in the 1990s after a nasty battle with cancer. Her husband and co-counsel, he has also passed away. Ruth Stebbins, the mother of Mark Stebbins, died in 1998 at age 64. In a recent televised interview with Mike Stebbins, he pointed out that with his mother and his brother gone, he's all alone. Marion King, the mother of Timothy, died in 2004. Her husband, Barry King, spent much of 2016 working on a blog about his son's case. If you want to dig deeper, I recommend reading A Father's Story. It's both a blog and posted chapter by chapter on Facebook. His daughter, Tim's sister, Catherine Broad, also has a blog. It's detailed, passionate, and worth your time. King was the last known victims of the Oakland County child killer. The first victim was Mark Stebbins, abducted from Ferndale. During the polygraph examination, detectives asked Christopher Brian Bush if he'd had anything to do with the Stebbins kidnapping and murder. The trooper administering the polygraph concluded that Bush was being truthful, and even though he was facing charges in other molestation cases, he was let go. We got a four-time charged pedophile who's put back on the street, if he was involved, he should have been in jail and he shouldn't have been out the night Timmy was abducted. The winter of 1978 was tense. People were on edge, but there were no more small bodies left on the roadside. The other people linked to this crime are scattering to the winds, Norberg to Wyoming, Lamborghini to Ohio, and Warzeka to Texas. But let's talk about another Wednesday, a day we know the Oakland County child killer likes, a day that he selected two young victims. But this Wednesday, January 25th, 1978, was different. It came in a huge wave, several feet of snow, blanketing all of Oakland County. In fact, most of the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region were snowed in. The blizzard paralyzed the area for days. The snow brought more than a silent white blanket. It provided quiet reassurance that the killer's work was done. There would be no more bodies. Children played outside in the snow, whooping and celebrating, bundled warmly against the cold. Our parents watched us closely. Our older brothers and sisters cast a protective eye, but that blizzard was cleansing. It roared through the area for days, a punctuation mark to a dark and terrifying time. The family of Timothy King has been outspoken in their wishes that more will be done to close the case. Barry King, Timothy's father, turns 86 this year. I don't know how much longer he can wait for justice. Covering a story like this one, a story with such significant impact on the community, came with a great deal of pressure. I wanted very much to do this case justice. I hope that I did right by these four children, Mark Stebbins, 
Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timothy King. They certainly deserve it. If you lived in Southeast Michigan during the 1970s and know someone who drove a 1971 or 72 Pontiac Le Mans with primer spots on the driver's side, a broken left rear taillight, and a damaged trailer hitch, or if you have additional information about the identity of the Oakland County child killer, please contact Detective Sergeant Rebecca MacArthur at the Michigan State Police, 248-584-5740. If you would like to show your support of this podcast, please check out our sponsor, Blue Apron. Remember, you get your first three meals free. Visit blueapron.com slash already gone. As always, thank you for listening and please be safe.